literally crush their spirit. And we can bless someone and lift their spirit. But to, to say that there is no such thing as grief or anguish, especially grief or anguish over sin in the believer's life, uh, that really does not do justice to Scripture. And the other thing is it does not do justice to our actual experience. I would, uh, unless I'm incredibly abnormal, which which might be true, unless I'm abnormal, um, I I find myself often looking uh, even back over a day and kind of kicking myself and saying, what an idiot. Why did you say that to that person? Why did you treat your wife that way? Why were you so absorbed in yourself that you didn't notice this other concern? Um, and there are shortcomings, and I'm going to say, say it truthfully, there are sins throughout my day. And if I don't think they're there, all I've got to do is talk to the Lord a little bit and look into the Word a little bit, and those things will be exposed. So today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that is, I think, in one sense, it's the easiest passage to preach from because everybody understands it, because it is a universal human struggle. In fact, people who don't even know Christ have the struggle to a lesser degree, but Christians have the struggle with uh, what we actually do and what we want to do. Or what we don't do that we'd like to do. And we find ourselves always falling short even of our own standards, let alone God's standards. Well, the Apostle Paul addresses this very real struggle in Romans chapter 7. And that is where we're going to to be today. Now, in Romans chapter 6, we had this struggle introduced. In the first part of chapter 6, where it says, What then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin live, still live in it? Uh, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into death? It goes on to say how we were buried with him, we were raised with him, and therefore we ought to walk in newness of life. So that describes our, our standing with Christ. As a Christian, if you truly trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, if your sins are forgiven because you have confessed them to him and you have received the free gift of eternal life by faith. You stand righteous with Christ. You have been crucified with Him. You have been buried with Him and you have been raised with Him spiritually to a new life. The security of that is amazing. That there is, there is no backing away from something that God has done. You cannot raise yourself from the dead, but through Christ you can be raised with him 
as, he, as your heart is changed and as you trust in him. So that is our standing. And Romans chapter 7, we'll get to that in a minute, but the first part of it also addresses our standing. We're dead to sin, alive to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the righteousness that gives us that standing is a righteousness that is alien to us. We produce none of it. It comes completely from God. Now the question is, does this righteousness of Jesus Christ, when the Bible says, I'll, give, I'll take out your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh, uh, does it so change us that we can in ourselves claim righteousness? That we can in ourselves then maintain that righteousness in such a way that we would never have to suffer the wrath of God? Well, in fact, there is probably uh, the dominant stream of teaching within what we call Christendom teaches what is called infused righteousness. That when a person is initiated into the kingdom of God, um, and in this particular stream of theology, it is through baptism, um, and you can be an infant because it is something that is done to you in that state. If you are initiated into the kingdom of God, you then receive a, a new nature which which is actually intrinsic within you. That you yourself are made pure, are made perfect, are made holy. Now it is very clear that nothing impure or imperfect or unholy will ever enter into God's presence. Therefore, if my righteousness, if the righteousness that I receive at baptism, if that righteousness... Um, if it is essentially mine after that point, then it is up to me to maintain that righteousness. And if I err, if I, if I fall in that, in that pursuit of maintaining that purity that is necessary in order to see God, then there has to be a remedial way for me to get my righteousness uh, topped up. And therefore... I have to make up for the evil I have done, or I have to um, maybe go to a and and uh, go to through rites of confession or or penance or or uh, or go through the propitiatory sacrifice of the mass. And the the idea is that the grace is dispensed through the avenue of the church and through the sacraments of the church, but. Our sin in our bodies is always going to be counted against that grace. And to survive this life and not have outstanding sin that has not yet been dealt with is an impossibility. And therefore there is another doctrine called purgatory. Because no person's Sin can ever be fully paid for or fully uh, uh, fully uh, accounted for. And so there has to be a period of purging to bring us perfect into heaven. Now, as I read the book of Romans, that is not what I see being taught. There is a new heart given 
for sure. But, and the standing of that is absolutely certain that in Christ there is no more fear, there is no more condemnation, as it says in Romans chapter 1. There is no, there is now, therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. But this matter of the state, this matter of the state we find ourselves in from day to day, how is that reconciled in such a system? If we're saved by grace, why is it necessary then for us to please God? Why is it a problem if we sin? Why is it a problem if we even keep on sinning? Because obviously... Um, salvation is not something we do. So in chapter 6, in chapter, the first part of chapter 7, in fact the whole part of chapter 7, the Apostle Paul addresses both our state, or both our standing before God as righteous and in the righteousness of Christ, and also the state of the imperfection we face as we go through life, and of the longing that we might apprehend what we have been called for. The Apostle Paul said, Not as though I had already attained or were perfect, but I press on toward the mark of the high calling of Jesus Christ. And that same Apostle, who, uh, you know, his, his pen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote almost half of the New Testament. That same Apostle even toward the end of his life, declared that he is, was, declared himself the chiefest or the greatest of sinners. And yet, that same apostle wrote Romans chapter 8, which is a triumph, uh, and saying there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how do we bring together our standing and our state? That's really what we are dealing with in these two chapters. Now, in chapter 6, the metaphor of slavery was used. And the idea that to whomever you yield yourselves, you become his servants to obey, whether of, uh, whether of to, toward sin or toward sin as instruments of iniquity or to obedience as instruments of righteousness. Um, and there is a conscience, there is a conscious aspect to this. Even for a Christian, you do not wake up every morning with every member of your body and every faculty of your imagination yielded to God. This is, this is something that you have a heart that desires these things, but you also have sin warring against you. You have a mind that the Bible tells us to renew, but that it is not automatically renewed. This is something that, uh, that happens as we progress through life and as the Holy Spirit uh, moves in us and draws us toward himself and toward holiness. So in chapter 7, the metaphor was slavery, Chap or in chapter 6. Now in chapter 7, in the first part where our standing is discussed, we have the metaphor of marriage and divorce. And here we have language that we can all relate to in some way. 
So I'm going to read chapter 7, just the first part here. You can follow along with me. I'm starting at verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, so that is a statement of reality. It is, it is a statement of standing for every true Christian. Let, let me try to, um, just to work with the picture that Paul has painted so that we get an idea of what's going on here. Let's just imagine a woman who is married to a man who is um, rather tyrannical and nasty. He treats her terribly. He beats her up. He abuses her physically and sexually. He curses her. Um, and she fears daily, even for her life. Well, this man dies. And let's say also that this uh, the the woman then under under God's law, which says that a man and woman um, that the man and woman are to be joined together, and that no man can separate them, and that the only thing that separates them is death. So death comes. There is a free and clear separation. This woman has been a faithful wife. She hasn't divorced her husband up to this point or anything like that. She is now free to marry whomever she chooses. Well, the opposite of her husband comes along, a, a kind, caring man who genu genuinely loves her and has uh, compassion for her. He lifts her on a pedestal. He, he does, uh, as Ephesians uh, chapter, uh, chapter 5 says, he lays down his life for her. And he washes her with the water of the word. This woman is free from the tyranny of that old relationship. And she is under the freedom of the new relationship. However, given what she has endured, given what she has given the behavior patterns and the responses that she has accumulated and the coping mechanisms and the self-protection mechanisms, very likely, even though the reality is freedom, she will bring some of those, um, those elements with her. They're, they were part of her old life, 
And even though she knows that they do not belong in her new life, even though she knows that they are interfering with her, even with her intimacy with her new husband, they're still there exerting an influence. I don't know, and I can't say for sure that this is what Paul has in mind, but I'm putting it in some more extreme terms here. Now, when Paul talks about uh, let's, let me just see. There's parts in here that can be f- confusing if we don't uh, if we don't go through them carefully. Um, verse eight or verse four. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised. In this little illustration, it wasn't the woman who died; it was the husband. Okay. But when Paul says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law, what he's talking about is the severance of the relationship so that the law no, no longer has any more control. Um, so one of the great things we learned from chapter 6 is that slavery to sin, uh, hold on, um, yeah, that grace does not eradicate sin's influence. It removes the saint's obligation to sin. So, the severance of that old union with death and with sin means that there is, there is no longer any legitimate control there. You no longer have to submit to sin. And you are completely free now as a new person in Christ to submit to God and to live a new life, and to live a joyful life. However, there is the reality of our state, where we find ourselves. Now, we're going to go fairly rapidly through this chapter. I think that most of this we can grasp, because... We are so familiar with sin. Um, it's, it's all around us. And especially if you're a believer, you are intensely aware. Um, an unbeliever has the option of not really seeing sin as sin because they have not been brought to the point of death by the law. They have not seen their sin as exceedingly sinful. And they have not repented of that sin and under the grace given by God been raised to life and been forgiven of that. Now for a believer, who, if all of that is true, sin is indeed a crisis. It is something that um, your very spirit, because you are indwelt by God, will react to that and will protest against that and will want to be free from it. And you might even cry out, as Paul does at the end of Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Very likely Isaac Newton, or pardon me, uh, John Newton had that scripture in mind when he wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Not There are people who have tried to change the lyric of that song and to change the theology that's represented there. Because it is very not, not very popular at all for people 
to think of themselves as wretches. We're told, well, you're made in God's image and God don't make no junk, therefore you can't be wretched and you're one of the king's kids and so on. So how, how dare you feel wretched or how dare you deal with the, the reality that there seems to be some indwelling sin that you can't, that, it, that you struggle with? Well, let's just, uh, we'll, we'll read on here a little bit, um, starting at verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if, I ha- if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had, said, had not said, you shall not covet. I think we can, we can bear witness to this. If mother had not said, do not touch the cookies cooling on the cupboard until after supper, well, the, the very fact that she said, don't touch the cookies, makes it all the more irresistible to touch the cookies. See, that's, that's a rebellion in us. It, it is built into us. So when the law says, you shall not covet, well, not only are you suddenly aware that desiring something that is not yours is wrong, but it seems that the actual opportunity for coveting seems to multiply. And your depth of sinking into the pit of coveting, that, that pit gets deeper and deeper because the law is there. And because the flesh and your own, your old nature cannot please God. So it goes on here. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Far apart from the, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Okay, if there were no law, there would be no sin. Right? If there were no standard, there could be no deviation from that standard. But even in, in Romans, uh, I think it's in chapter 2, or maybe three, that even when the Gentiles by nature do the things that are in the law, they become a law unto themselves. And when they violate their own understanding, their own internal law that's written on their hearts, they're still violating the law. And from the very first sin, when there was only one commandment, only one law, once that step was taken to, uh, to, to reach out for autonomy and, and spiritual, um, like to have control over your own, over Adam and Eve's own life and to have in themselves the knowledge of good and evil and to be as gods. Once that bite was taken out of that fruit, that permeated upon everyone. So basically, this if there were no law, it's really hypothetical because for everyone now living, there is law. And the more we know law, the more the law comes to us, the more we know how much we're violating it. This is why it's so important to use the law in evangelism, to use the commandments of God to, so that they can, uh, they can act as a, a foil to show as something bright, to so, show the darkness of sin beside it. Now let's, uh, let's continue uh, in verse 10. The very commandment that promised life 
proved to be death to me. Now elsewhere in Romans, Paul quotes, God says, those who do these commandments will live by them. And that's quoted from the Old Testament. So the commandments were given with this proviso. If you do all of these commandments, he said to, God said to Israel, if you do all of these things and you're faithful to do them, then I will, I will bless you. And, you know, you will be, uh, you'll be brought into the land and there will be all of these benefits and all of these blessings. And, of course, the people said, everything the Lord has commanded us, we will do. That was wishful thinking because the reality of indwelling sin was not rightly understood. Good in intentions to please God, just by doing what he says, will always fall flat unless God is responsible for the, the saving. Okay, let's just uh, continue on a little bit here in verse uh, 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Now there's a, a passage in Galatians that says if anybody is caught in a sin, then the other, other brothers ought to restore him gently. It doesn't say if, if anybody is continually and deliberately wallowing through sin, if that person is seeking out every sin opportunity and indulging it to the full, that we should go to them and restore them gently. That requires something called, well, you could call it tough love or extreme love. The Apostle Paul, in such cases, said, give them over to Satan so they can be brought to repentance. But notice, sin has an element of deceit for the Christian. We can sin, and we are more likely to sin if we actually think we're doing something righteous. If we, if we actually think we're um, living within the favor of God. So sin has a deceiving element. It says, for sin, seizing an opportunity, verse 11, through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me brought me to this place of essentially despair. Now I should have mentioned at the beginning of this that many people see chapter 7 as a picture of an unbeliever. And then they would see chapter 8 as a picture of a person who has trusted in Christ. Um, or they would perhaps see it as the Apostle Paul presenting a hypothetical case, uh, just as an argumentative device, because there is no way the Apostle himself would ever struggle with sin to this extent. Well, the Apostle Paul does say, and I don't have the reference to the top of my head, but he does say, I die daily. And there, there's a sense when, when we are confronted with sin in our lives that there is a slaying quality <laughs> in that sin. Um, in a Christian, I think it's, it's like the Apostle John 
standing in the presence of the glorified Christ in the book of Revelation. And when he sees him, he falls down as a dead man. It's the prophet Isaiah when he sees the Lord and the glory of the Lord filling the temple and the fire and smoke and the cherubim and, and, and the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, he too falls down and he basically says, I'm a dead man. Woe is unto me. Heavy calamity is unto me. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. So there, so sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. See, that's what kills us. The commandment is God's perfect standard. God's undeniable standard laid out clearly for us to see. And the more we understand of this, the more it's going to slay us. The more it is going to tell us of our hopelessness, of our wretchedness. Now, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become beyond, become sinful beyond measure. Have you ever been thoroughly and completely disgusted and overwhelmed when God's righteousness is made clear to you through his word? When you maybe you've listened to a message or you've read a passage of scripture or sung a song and your life is laid bare and the sin in, is you, in you is exposed. Now I'm not saying for a moment that for a Christian, that the presence of sin in your life will take away your salvation. But it will produce an agony and a discomfort that will... The, the only place that you can run in that situation is to God. For mercy and for grace to help in time of need. So... I hope I'm not oversimplifying or mangling this. This is how I'm understanding it. But Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, in the actual status, or in, in the standing of Paul, okay, let's just say that this is really Paul writing this. It's not hypothetical. It's really him. He is not sold under sin. He does not belong to sin. He's already said in Romans chapter 6 that, that if we're buried with, if we're uh, crucified with Christ, buried with him, raised again in his resurrection, then sin has no more right to rule us. However, isn't there talk in Romans chapter 6 about the possibility that a believer could indeed yield himself or herself, members of their body, to sin as instruments of righteousness. And there has to be a conscious and deliberate decision not to do that. 
but to yield the members of our body in obedience to God as instruments of righteousness. I know that if indeed the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm, a, I'm sold under sin, he is not saying, I'm sold out. But he's saying this nearness to death, this experience of my woe, is because of that yielding to sin in my life. Now look at how this actually plays out. And, and by the way, we're going to see now here why I believe we cannot say this is a picture of an unregenerate person or an unsaved person writing this or, or the, that, it, that is being presented here. Look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do... I do not do what I want to, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Sin is a problem. And I would argue that sin is a problem for the believer, not one that affects his standing, but the one that his state is constantly struggling with. And I believe that you could, I can say clearly here that because of Paul's desire in his heart to do what is good, that, or because of this, the statement that, that says, so I want now, if I do what I want, I, what I do not want, I agree with the law. First of all, unbelievers do not agree with the law. They protest against the law. And it also says that he desires to do what is good. Well, there is none that does good. There's none that seeks after God. We've already learned that in the book of Romans. So I, I think that this is a very real dilemma for uh, uh, a Christian who... I'm, I would step right out and say the Apostle Paul, if I were to compare my life to his, I would say he was a very righteous man. Um, and yet he would say of himself, I'm the worst of sinners. Some of the most godly men, Jonathan Edwards for an example, thought of himself as the most wretched Sinner. And toward the end of John Newton's life, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, the, the reality that was strongest upon him was his own wretchedness. Now that doesn't mean that John Newton wallowed in despair because of his wretchedness. 
Because the beautiful thing about being in Christ is we continually surrender our wretchedness to Jesus. We continually come to Him and said, I lack, I have sinned, I have fallen short. I need you. I am miserable and wretched and poor and blind and naked. I have nothing that is of any value to you. I want to buy from you a white robe of righteousness. I want to buy from you a salve so that, for my eyes so that I can see. I want to... I want to acknowledge my continual need of you. And by the way, the only other time that that Greek word that is used for wretched here in this passage, the only other time that it is used in the whole New Testament is Revelation chapter 3. Let's just turn there for a moment. And it's in the church, in the context of the church of Laodicea as Jesus is delivering a rebuke and a call to repentance to this church. Let's just read verses 15 through 18. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold, or cold nor hot. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, Pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves in the, uh, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Okay, there's something that is really key to notice here. Romans chapter 7 is a man who knows his wretchedness. He is recognizing his wretchedness. And I used to get very depressed looking at this passage because I would just see myself in that wretchedness. But the acknowledgement and the humble admission of our wretchedness, of our sin, and of our if, if we don't understand without Jesus, we're dead people. If, we, if we're not aware of that, and if we think that somehow this wretchedness is going to be just smoothed over and washed over in our lives so that it's no longer a pro- problem, and if we live that way, if we live in the way that, uh, the, way that the Apostle John says that um, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So in, Re- in Revelation chapter 3, you got a church, a, a whole church that's saying, we're rich, we don't have need of anything. And the sadness of it is everything that they need, they lack. They lack spiritual covering. They lack spiritual sight. They lack spiritual riches. And Christ is calling them to repent. Now, I have actually taught Romans chapter 
7 in such a way that, like this, we, we have to get out of Romans chapter 7 so we can live in Romans chapter 8. I think my, changing, my thinking is changing there. Romans chapter 7 will be with us until the redemption of our bodies. Romans chapter 7, this struggle and this, um, this confusion when we find ourselves doing things we don't want to do. And in fact, if you even read Romans chapter 8 carefully, you understand that the corruption is not done away with until the manifestation of the sons of God. The whole creation groans and travails, waiting for the redemption, for the resurrection of our bodies. When corruption will be done away with. And as 1 Corinthians 15 says, the corruptible will put on the incorruptible and we shall all be changed. The corruption that is inborn in us, well, God has given us a new heart which then seeks him. This new heart is bombarded and this, the mind that we still have, that, we've, that we carry with us, it does not renew itself. These are, these are everyday realities. The yielding of our members to God as instruments of righteousness, it's a daily thing. Dying to ourselves, dying to the sin, and submitting ourselves to God. This is a daily thing. All right, now let's... Uh, finish off here with the last few verses. So I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. You ever have to repent of your repentance? (laughs) Think about that one for a while. Is there sometimes a little bit of pride, a little bit of self-justification, a little bit of comparison with others even in your repentance? Do you ever pray sinfully? It's possible, you know. It's possible to pray in such a way that your real object of worship is yourself and you're praying to a conception of God, you're praying to an idol in your own mind rather than praying to God as he reveals himself. It's possible even when you delight, even when you do right, that evil is close at hand. Preaching, it it is such a very real threat for preachers to be sinning most when they're preaching because they are not yielded to God, because they are serving an, an agenda other than His. And I would be as as vulnerable or more to that threat than anyone else. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. See, that proves, that proves right there. This is not an unbeliever. (laughs) It's not, we're not intended to think this way. I delight, if you delight in the law of God in the inward being, um, you know him, okay? But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. 
wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Now this is why we preach the gospel to Christians. Because not only does God provide salvation from sin and the right standing with God and therefore having been justified by faith, he provides that completed, completed action. But he provides continuous salvation, continuous sanctification as we fight this fight, as we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers of wickedness and high places. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I would like you to notice that this tense that this is addressed in grammatically is future tense. Okay? Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's, there is a, a view of what we've, I've already mentioned, the redemption of our bodies, the, the, the doing away of sin, of corruption once and for all. Uh, this is where it is all going to be finally dealt with. And yet there is a continual deliverance. And as Paul is crying out here, who will deliver me from this body of death? He knows the answer, and he knows the answer through experience and through what the Scripture teaches that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And that Christ stands now as our advocate, pleading the case of what he has already accomplished, that, the, that our sentence has been, um, has been done away with, that he has paid completely, that the guilt, uh, the, the, the guilt and the, the, the penalty of sin has been uh, done away with in a way that is completely satisfactory to God. Now, and this offers salvation, not only in this sense of standing, but as we go, as we walk through life, the reality of the Spirit of Christ within us, the reality of the advocacy of Christ in heaven, the reality of the Spirit himself uh, bearing witness with our spirit that we are the, sin of, uh, the, the sons of God, we're getting into chapter 8 here, and the reality that... Even when we do not know what to pray for as we ought, the Holy Spirit intercedes with us, for us, with groanings too deep for words. So there is... What I see in this, in this chapter, especially at the end, is that we cannot hide from our wretchedness. We cannot pretend and deny our sin and continue to please God because God is not fooled by any of it. The people in Laodicea 
The saddest thing is they didn't know. How can we not know? Because the Bible tells us these things. So let's let's understand that as Christ saves us when we trust in him, that that doesn't end that saving relationship. It isn't as though he is not there always and that we need to keep coming to him in our current state. And I would encourage us all to be very honest about our state, not to be despairing. This is not a despairing cry. When he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord, that joyous knowledge that Christ has already accomplished and will and will and has already sat down at the right hand of the Father and is there waiting for him, that is going to get him through. Um, anyway, now, the very last sentence here, it says, now, after he professes deliverance in Jesus Christ, after he, professes, or after he confesses that Jesus Christ um, is the one who will deliver him from this body of death, he says, so then... I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So I don't, I, I, can't, I can't say, trust in Jesus and all your troubles will be over and you'll have complete victory over sin. Nor can I say to you that through constant and continual surrender to God every time you sin. And then and if you can somehow clean out of the closet all of the dirty little secrets and, and lay them before God and leave them there, I cannot guarantee that those things will not come back because they will. Because wretched is our reality. But deliverance is also our reality. This life in Christ... The, the, the knowledge that Christ has done what it takes to, to bring us into right relationship with God, and he will do what it takes to bring us all the way through this life so that he can bring us and be, and be proud of us at the end. Well, that, that's wrong. God will be pleased with the righteousness of Christ that he has worked out in us at the very end. Next week, I wanted to do a repeat. Um, it's actually a message I preached at Easter time, but it is it fits right here, and it's called Ten Resurrection Realities. And the very the very first resurrection reality is uh, the reality of indwelling sin, which we've, we've covered quite extensively today. Uh, but uh, I trust that this has been encouraging to you. Um, You're all wretches, <laughs> but you're all, but you're all, the, the, the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed for our sin and our wretchedness, and through faith in Jesus Christ, um, we know that we will be delivered from the body of this death. Let's pray.